So, Ezekiel, we talked about how there's some fantastical stuff going on in the book of Ezekiel. One of the other famous events in Ezekiel was the Valley of Dry Bones, uh, where uh, all these bones get brought back to life, and it's this beautiful prophetic vision that's given to Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, though, belongs, uh, begins with these words. So Ezekiel, it's a compilation of, uh, I forget if it's two or three prophecies, uh, different prophetic periods. Um, he's given a compilation of visions to Ezekiel over several decades, two decades, I think. The first vision was given in 593. Um, the famous vision of the New Jerusalem, that was in 573. And then both of them are put together in the book of Ezekiel. The first vision, it was meant to explain to the Israelites why God's glory departed from Israel and why God allowed Israel and the temple to be destroyed. So there's lots of very strong, explicit law in this first section here where God is just very clearly trying to tell the Israelites uh, what the deal is, why it was that they were defeated. Uh, the temple vision, which comes later on and the accompanying prophecies with it, uh, those are on God not abandoning his people, but promising a future with them. And that's where we get that vision of the temple. Uh, the, the Valley of Dry Bones is part of that as well. But in this first part, it is God addressing a people that have been obstinate for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they have now received uh, the they have now received the effects of that obstinacy. And so Ezekiel is being sent to preach a very, very harsh message, uh, a message that would be very difficult to, to preach. And so this is the way that God begins talking to him. God says, uh, so Ezekiel's writing, uh, Ezekiel, he said, God said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. So again, as we're kind of thinking about this idea of God's word, um, how, does, how does Ezekiel describe what God does to him? The spirit came into me. What's this supposed to be emphasizing? The spirit, capital S, right, we see here, right, that God is present in the, physically present in the prophet as he's about to bring forward these words, right? The spirit came into me. And he's going to be talking to a rebellious nation. So we have God sending a prophet to a rebellious nation, right? The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And then we've got the prophecy that's beginning at that point. Uh, just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter three, and we've got this famous phrase. Then he, God, said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So although it seems hopeless, to preach to Israel, God still sends them this prophet. This is a obstinate and stubborn people, and God still sends them a prophet. What does that tell you about God and his word? Right? God is faithful. Give up. Yeah, Rose, yeah. He doesn't give up. God is faithful even when we're not. 
even when we refuse to open ourselves to God, he still keeps his end of the bargain, right? He still follows through with his love and with his, with his uh, clear, honest word for us. God's word is reliable, right? It moves forward um, despite what we try to do to stop it. Um, and even if a whole nation is rebellious, God still preserves his gospel for the remnant, right? For the remnant of believers that exist within Israel. Why would God command Ezekiel? And there's other prophets too, to eat his word, to eat the actual prophecy. That seems like a very strange thing. Again, this is a vision that's being given to Ezekiel. Um, but why actually eat the scroll? What do you think is the symbolism behind this? Yeah, so we've used this language ourselves in the history of the church to inwardly digest God's word. We don't want to just read the word of the Lord. We want to read the word of the Lord and let it permeate our beings and permeate our souls, right? And get into our very fibers of who we are. Uh, that's the goal. The word of the God needs to permeate the whole being of Ezekiel, right? the prophet of God here. God's word is going to go into him physically. And so God's word will come out of him, right? And so we ought to ingest God's word too. And so this happens again, famously in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's a line in the Psalms too, I think, um, where we've got this language. Uh, but eating the scroll, right? So eating the words of God. Um, and so this is what we're still commanded to do today, right? When it comes to God's word, we eat them, right? We don't just read, we eat them. Why? Because these are not just simply words. How does Jesus describe who he is, right? The bread of life, the water of life, right? This is our source for life. This is how we learn how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, how we have been fully forgiven, how eternity is ours, how we have become children of God. It's through his word. And so we inwardly digest that beautiful both law and gospel message, right? That God sends into our lives through his word. With that, the next thing we're going to be asking ourselves is, so um, we're going to do a little bit of research. What does the Old Testament tell us about the Old Testament? So we're going to take a look at some verses and uh, we're going to ask, well, how were the books of the Old Testament originally written? So how were they actually compiled based on what the Bible itself tells us about it? So most famous event in the Old Testament probably for the giving of God's word was Mount Sinai. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, the very first big stop that they make is Mount Sinai. God brings them to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai and there God gives Moses his law. And Moses is going up and down the mountain for weeks, just receiving more of God's law and bringing it down to the people. And so did God just say all these things to Moses? Moses get down to the mountain and then just say it. And that was that? Well, this is what we're told. So when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. How long is that going to last? Uh, yeah, so maybe think of us, right? When we say, all right, Lord, I'm going to do everything you tell me to do. How long does that last, right? Our deep need for a savior. 
Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. And that's the big phrase there, right? Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So what we're told is that Moses, after receiving the laws on Mount Sinai, he then wrote it down into a identifiable book called the book of the covenant. And that is what's been preserved up to us to this day, is that book of the covenant. So that's the way uh, Moses received God's word. What about uh, the rest of the prophets or other examples? So Joshua, Moses then brings the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, brings them right up to the Jordan River, uh, but he's not allowed to go into the promised land. Instead, Joshua brings the Israelites into the promised land, and Joshua then, uh, led by God, uh, defeats all the nations, the Canaanites in, in uh, Israel at that time. And after everything is all done, this is what Joshua uh, is written in Joshua. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. So all this to say, Joshua wrote things down, right? And that this was the practice, right? Uh, writing things down. Um, these were illiterate people. God gave them uh, things to do. God gave them revelation and they would write these things down. Um, in this case, we've got Joshua writing things down after the, the defeat of uh, Canaan. We got, oh, let's uh, end maybe with the next slide here. So as for other events, this now we're moving a little bit further. Joshua settles in Israel. Israel then has the period of judges. After that period of judges, you've got King Saul, then you've got King David, and then after that, Solomon, and then the divided kingdom. And here during the divided kingdom, we've got these words. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and inlaid with ivory and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? As for the other events of Jehoshaphat's reign, the things he achieved in his military exploits, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? So there are lots of passages like this in the book, in uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, where it says, are not these things written in this book, right? Uh, the rest of the events of this king are written down in this book. What book are they talking about? Well, they could be talking about, 1 Kings here could be talking about Chronicles, right? The other ones, uh, because 1 Chronicles and 1 Kings, and, or 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, they mirror each other in the time period that they cover, and they sometimes fill in gaps for each other over the reigns of the different kings there. So it's possible that one pair, First and Second Kings, is referring to First and Second Chronicles. But are they for certain? We don't know for certain. In fact, here are all the different names of books that are used. I think this is uh, not all of them. This might be, uh, you know, I think a lot of them. But these are the types of books that are referenced in First uh, Kings and Second Kings and in those books. Every now and then after it describes the reign of a king, it will say, well, now there's more that's written about it in this chronicle. So the books of history, Joshua through Esther, make reference to dozens of contemporary historical sources. Some of these may be references to books of the Bible, some uh, to lost sources, so books that we don't have anymore. 
and some are multiple names for the same lost sources. Uh, historical sources include, so just listen to all of these other, other you know, or things that are mentioned, right? The rights and duties of the kingship, the law of Moses, the book of the Acts of Solomon, the chronicles of King David, the chronicles of Samuel the seer, the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, the chronicles of Edo the seer, the story of the prophet Edo, the book of the kings of Israel, the laments, uh, the book of the records, and uh, so forth. And so there's just lots of references to other historical documents where the writer is saying, if you want more about this king, this is a place where you could go. And 3,000 years ago, you know, or 2,800 years ago, uh, the person reading First Kings, Second Kings, they would know where it was that they were being directed to go because maybe a book of the Bible had other well-known names that we just don't know about today. So they knew to look into another book of the Bible, or they were referring to just another historical source of that time, one that's been lost. Um, but so this makes, so we, we're not certain what these are referring to. It doesn't change anything for us in any way, shape or form. We've got solid inspired historical books in First Kings and Second Kings and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. But just to tell you that there was lots of writing going down at this time and lots of historical writing, that this was a very wide practice of that time. So that's kind of interesting stuff. And so that's what I was referring to with Christine's question earlier on. Um, maybe that's what she was referring to. The other thing with the uh, antilogomena is we're looking at the big ones, but you can find a rabbi, a theologian in any time of the period, you know, throughout history questioning everything. So that we're just kind of looking at the ones that come up more than anything else. So uh, what does the Old Testament tell us about the Old Testament? Well, based on the verses below, how did the Jews by Jesus time organize the Old Testament? And this is where we're picking up things in our lesson. So we've got Jesus here speaking to uh, his uh, uh, speaking to uh, the Jewish people, and he says, "Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand." So listen to what Jesus is saying here then. The book of Psalms then is something that Jesus is quoting as prophecy. So Jesus is saying that this book of Psalms, every Sunday, we usually sing a psalm. Right now we're saying it responsibly in worship. Uh, but those psalms, there's 150 of them collected, most of them written by David, some of them by other people of the temple court. These psalms were collected, and they weren't just songs. They weren't just poetry, but instead they were inspired. There's lots of psalms that talk very clearly about the Messiah, about this promised person that's going to come. And here Jesus himself is quoting one of these Psalms to the Jewish people to show that it was pointing towards him coming. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And why is he going to quote this? Because Jesus is going to say, uh, how is it possible for David, the Lord, to be talking about the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We've got two Lords going on here. What's going on here? Well, we're talking not just about David, but about David's Lord, who is the promised Messiah, right? Um, so some neat stuff going on there. The point being is that Jesus calls the book of Psalms uh, the word of God, uses it as scripture and prophecy. Here, another point, Jesus is talking 
And he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Here we're talking about John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. So what's Jesus talking about here? The law and the prophets? This is a simple Jewish way of talking about the Old Testament. This is how they would say Old Testament. They wouldn't say Old Testament because for them there was just one Testament. There wasn't a New Testament yet, right? So how did they describe their collection of books from, uh, from this thousand-year time period? They described it as the law. What's the Jewish word for law? Torah, right? The Hebrew word for law, Torah. So that's the five books that Moses wrote. The Torah and prophets. And so, in other words, the five books that Moses wrote, and then the other books that the prophets spoke, um, bundled together into this kind of phrase, the law and the prophets. Jesus, when he is on the road to Emmaus, we've talked about this event once or twice already. Jesus says to these two disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus is talking to these two disciples that are completely confused about what's happened the last few days. Jesus, their, 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 um, their teacher, their rabbi had been crucified three days earlier. That morning, people are talking about an empty tomb. And these two disciples are confused. They're wondering what's going on. And Jesus is talking to them and he hasn't shown himself yet as the risen savior. And what does he talk to them about? The Old Testament and about how that Old Testament pointed forward for all these things happening. But how does he call that Old Testament? He says, the law of Moses. What's that referring to? The Torah, right? So those first five books of the Bible, Moses, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So here we've got then the Psalms being referred to in the same kind of collection of books as the law and the prophets. So again, we've got Moses, we've got the prophets. Who would some of these prophets be? Things like Isaiah, Jeremiah, right? Think of these big books of prophecy in the Old Testament. They would also include in uh, the prophets things like the histories as well, like First and Second Kings, and then Psalms, these poetic books. Uh, under Psalms would also be included the other books of wisdom. So this is kind of the way then that in the Jewish mind, they organized the Old Testament. And we're talking about a people that existed for over a thousand years. So there's been a couple ways that they've organized this in their mind, but this is kind of in general, the main way that uh, a lot of Jewish people did for most of the period of the time is that they would organize then the Old Testament into 24 books. Okay. They would combine a couple of them together. And so they had the law, which was the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then they had the prophets or the Nabim. And so the prophets, these would be things like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets. So think of those really small prophetic books that are at the end of the Old Testament. Those would be bundled together into this kind of title called the prophets. Then they had what was called the writings. And so sometimes as shorthand for the writings, they would say Psalms, like we've got Jesus saying. But in that kind of category then would be these kind of special books that uh, aren't entirely prophecy from start to finish, but instead these kind of special ones, especially historically. You've got Psalms, you've got Job, which is probably the oldest book of the Bible. 
It was probably written about the time of Abraham. So you're talking written around uh, 2000 BC. So that's our oldest book that we have in the Bible. The language in it, the way that it's written, a lot of historians, doesn't matter uh, how, where you are in the kind of spectrum of stuff. That's a really old book written probably around the time of Abraham taking place in a culture reflected, reflecting Abraham's time. That's 2000 BC. You don't have Moses then until about 1400 BC. So you're talking 400 years later. But so you've got Psalms, you've got Job, then you've got Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. So the books of Solomon, that would be considered part of the writings category. Uh, Lamentations, um, uh, Esther, Daniel, these books that are especially looking at the time in captivity uh, and the time then, including Ezra through Nehemiah, which are the histories of the captivity. And uh, then the book of Chronicles as well would kind of be in this writings category. All this to say that the Jewish mind had these books organized, these books of the Old Testament. They combined things again, such as they didn't have first and second chronicles. They just combined them into chronicles. I don't know off the top of my head why we've divided them into first and second chronicles, uh, but for them, it was one unified book, same with Kings. And so things are just kind of organized a little bit differently, but they're still all the, there, the Old Testament as you know it and love it. How was the Old Testament preserved then? So we said that this book was written, Job, possibly 2000 BC, uh, the books of Moses, 1400 BC. Well, how do we know that they've been preserved through that time? This is what we do know. From around 200 AD to 1200 AD, Jewish scribes in Israel followed a strict copying method that preserved what we call the Masoretic text. So this is one a specific typesetting version of the Old Testament called the Masoretic Text, which was the basis for European translations of the Bible from 200 AD to 1900 AD. So famous copies of the Masoretic Text include the Aleppo Codex. You can Google that and take a look at pictures of that. The Leningrad Codex, uh, you can look at that online as well and see pictures of them. Uh, the Aleppo Codex, we're talking 930 AD. So the copy that we have is from 930 AD. We don't have much before, as far as the Masoretic text goes, we don't have much before 930 AD because the Masoretes had a very kind of special way of going about doing their copying. Um, we're not sure if this is the case with all of them, but we know some of them did this where they would copy. So they would do a very kind of detailed copy of one book or so they would copy the Old Testament. They would then look at their copy and count characters and lines and all this kind of stuff to try to guarantee that it was a perfect copy. And guess what they would do with the old one? They would destroy it. Um, so they destroyed a lot of what, uh, you know, textual historians would love to have their hands on. Um, but we do know that they had a very specific way of going about their copying. In fact, this here is a picture of, I think it's the Aleppo Codex. And if you'll take a look at it, you'll see that there's some text uh, the text reads from right to left. And so you can kind of see that it's lined up on a left line there. And it goes from right to left. And there's three columns of text. But you'll notice that in between the columns, what do you have? You have these little characters there. These characters, they're called Mazora. And these were characters and little notes that the scribes themselves put in the text. 
or put in the copies as they were copying the text. So they would copy these little notes identically just as much as they would copy the text when they did manuscript to manuscript. And what those mazoras are is that they're largely uh, little notes on maybe how many times a certain word is used or how many uh, or how you pronounce a certain word or maybe grammatical notes about the grammar of the text. And so those notes were there specifically so that the next person copying could maybe count certain numbers of words to make sure that they've got the right numbers, um, make sure that they understood how the text is being transmitted. In other words, those mazora in the, in the margins there are specifically for the sake of making sure that this text gets copied perfectly or at least as humanly perfectly as possible. And so they built this into the way that they do it. And so in fact, when Pastor Getzinger and I do our text studies of the Old Testament, the, uh, the general Hebrew Bible that's used, the main kind of text that it's based on is one of these Masoretic texts. They also then uh, make adjustments based on other manuscripts that have been found. But the main text that it's based on is a Masoretic text. And what do you see there, at least on this picture of, uh, this is the very first page, Genesis chapter one. So that first line there reads, if you're going from right to left, it reads, uh, Barashit, uh, Barashit bara Elohim et hashamayim ba'et ha'aretz. So in the beginning, bara Elohim, God created et hashamayim, the heavens, ba'et ha'aretz, the earths, and the earths, or and the earth, singular. So that's Pastor. one one there. Yes. Um, why would they copy if, if they had the original? Why would they bother making a copy? Because it's getting old. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. They're preserving these texts over a thousand year period. And so uh, when the old one gets old, because they would use these texts in the synagogues, they would constantly be bringing out their giant uh, bound copy of the Masoretic text. And they would open it up and they would go through their readings um, every week on the Sabbath. Um, just like the Jews did for the time period before that. So the books would get worn out. Um, think about maybe our Bibles, our pew Bibles, how often do we need to replace those? And uh, those were not made with half the care as one of these Masoretic texts, or we don't treat them quite with as much reverence as these Masoretic texts, but they would eventually wear out. And so there'd be need to copy them. One of the things we're going to talk about though is we tend to think that these copies wore out really quickly, and that's not the case at all. Um, it depends on how much a text is being handled, but ancient manuscripts, they could last as much as two, 300 years uh, before um, they would start to disintegrate and things like that, maybe even longer if they're being treated really nicely. Good question. So you've got the Hebrew text there on the right, and then even in the text that Pastor Getzinger and I use as we go about doing our text studies, what do they still have even in our versions, but you have the Mazora that's preserved for you on the uh, left there. If you were to look at a full-size page of this, uh, the first page of Genesis here, not only would you have the Mazora that's there on the left, just in case, if you had good enough Hebrews chops, you could read the notes and kind of uh, understand why they're putting those in, what they're talking about uh, preserving. But then at the bottom, there's also an apparatus that shows you uh, other notes from other manuscript copies and things like that. 
So that's what's called the Masoretic Text. And so the Masoretic Text gives us a good idea of, um, it only takes us back to around 900 AD. So if the question is, well, how do we know that our Old Testament has been copied reliably before 900 AD? Well, we didn't have a whole lot to go on at all when it came to the Hebrew Bible. It's a completely different story when it comes to the New Testament. But as far as the Old Testament goes, there were virtually no major manuscripts before 900 AD that we had other than Masoretic texts. That all changed then with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1900s, I think it was uh, 946 when uh, our young shepherd boy uh, first throws a stone or something into one of the caves and hears some pottery crash, goes in there and discovers these things. It demonstrates that the Masoretic text has been faithfully preserved from the first century up to today. So basically what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls is they discovered in there these copies of the Old Testament that date back from uh, around 150 AD or 150 BC in the case of the real famous ones like the Isaiah scroll, some of the fragments from even earlier, 300 BC. And so in one discovery, we now have added a thousand years of what we know about the transmission of the Old Testament text, or at least things that we can measure between what we had around 900 AD with now zero AD and 100 BC. And what did we learn? Well, that they were ridiculously careful about copying texts just as much a thousand years earlier than we had known than uh, the Masoretes were, just as careful. The old the uh, Isaiah scroll, I think I mentioned that, is that um, we're talking about as far as a the, the book of Isaiah. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. It is huge. It is a huge book of the Bible. It is 66 chapters long. So it's the size of you know, three of our Gospels, if not longer. 66 chapters, and out of 66 chapters that have been copied by hand over a thousand years, if they were looking just at, I think, Isaiah 53, the, co the, the chapter of Isaiah 53, our most important uh, uh, messianic chapter, 15 characters were different. 15 characters, not words, but single characters were different in that thousand year period. Isaiah was preserved with a high, high degree of accuracy. Um, one scholar uh, writes, um, it is a matter of wonder that through something like a thousand years, the text underwent so little alteration. As I said in my first article on the scroll, herein lies its chief importance, supporting the fidelity of the Masoretic tradition. So uh, very powerful words. Again, Dead Sea Scrolls were, they were uh, discovered. Here's one of these famous pictures where you can see, I think there was 12 caves total. You can see some of the caves there in the cave wall. This is a uh, series of caves and hills that are right on the edge of the Dead Sea in an area called Qumran. There's the Isaiah scroll. And although the entire book wasn't preserved, uh, if you'll notice, most of it was. You can see at the very bottom of the scroll, there's little chunks missing. This is a 2000 year old scroll. Okay. So at the very bottom of the scroll, there's little chunks missing. So we can't check those words, but as you can see, uh, the other 20, 25 lines uh, very well intact. It's absolutely amazing as far as an archeological find. In a couple weeks, we'll take a close look at what other uh, ancient texts are like as far as the numbers that we have of them and manuscripts and things like that. 
And that'll just make this even blow your mind even more when we compare what God's preserved for us with both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Again, it's a huge scroll uh, in, I think it's a, oh, I forget which museum this is in, but there's copies of it that go around on tour sometimes. So uh, I don't know when the next time is a Dead Sea Scroll tour is going to come through here where you're going to be able to see some of them, but oftentimes they'll come through to Toronto and New York and places like that. It was in Ottawa. Okay, so in the Museum of History, yeah, yeah. So if that ever comes to town, go to it. My goodness, go to that because uh, it's just kind of an amazing, amazing thing to be able to see in person. So besides giant things like the Isaiah scroll, there were lots of tiny fragments as well. And so the oldest of these fragments date back to 300 BC, but all in all, we're talking about an absolutely astounding uh, find for archeologists and textual historians. Yeah. Some techniques that they're using for imaging and stuff. You know, um, I, I saw it applied to something that had been burned. Yeah. Example, where they can actually extract now the, the writing on something. It's strictly a biblical text or something that they're using on pay or just an image or something like that. So they're able to use burnt material. Yep. So Murray's uh, talking here about how there's especially in the last 20, 30 years, there's some amazing technology that helps us to be able to, to uh, discover writing, recapture writing in some of these scrolls that we weren't able to before. He was talking about ideas of maybe if you've got paper that's stuck together, a scroll that's crumpled up, we're now able to use technology to kind of read through that and pick up a lot of the text or be able to even reconstruct burnt texts. One of the more, in my mind, just kind of mind-blowing things that uh, textual uh, scholars are doing these days is very often what would happen is, especially in the Middle Ages, uh, there's not a whole lot of paper, right? They're not making books. There's not, you can't go out and buy a ream of paper or anything like that. So oftentimes what monks would do if they needed some uh, paper to write something on, some important notes, they would take an old scroll, you know, something that they just found somewhere and they would scrape off the text and then they would write over something new. And so what, uh, uh, we're discovering a lot of kind of historians are finding, which is really cool, is they're able to find some of these things where the, the text has been scraped off and someone's written something new on it, probably around 1000 AD or something like that. And with special cameras and technology, they're able to see the text that was scraped off and reconstruct the actual original text underneath that, which might have been, you know, 700 years earlier that it was written down, things like that. So we're talking just mind-blowing things that people are able to do with technology these days. And all of it, all of this technology, it does not work against the idea of scripture being preserved accurately. It seems to always go the other direction to show us that the text that we have is reliable. And it just kind of adds more and more uh, evidence to that. So besides the Masoretic text, besides the Dead Sea Scrolls, the other big thing that was uh, used to, that we have that, that helps us understand the preservation of the Old Testament text, is what's called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint was a, uh, was a translation, a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written 
roughly around 250 BC. It was written in Alexandria and it was written into Koine Greek. And so it was probably written over a period of time, but this was one of the main texts that was used by uh, Jewish people all over the Mediterranean world. There's my notes here. So what's interesting is that the Septuagint, it's a Greek Old Testament, but it's actually quoted in the New Testament more than the Hebrew Old Testament. So the uh, apostles or the disciples in Jesus' time, the, the Pharisees, Jesus himself, they had a very strong understanding of the Septuagint. They used it very regularly, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. We've got quotes from both of them, but there's a lot from the, the New Testament or a lot from the Septuagint, which just kind of reinforces to us that they were using it as something edifying, right? They were using it as scripture, something that they could use to build their spiritual lives upon, that we have Jewish people recorded in the gospels using translations in order to build their spiritual life upon. So don't for a minute feel like somehow you're second rate because you're using a translation and not the original Greek and Hebrew that you don't know the original Greek and Hebrew translations are edifying, right? Um, good. So the Septuagint, it was used largely by uh, the Jewish community up till around 400 AD. And so this also helps us when we're looking at Old Testament texts, we can see how they were translated into the Greek and things like that. And that gives us a feeling as well, as far as the integrity of the Old Testament, and as well as the meaning of what some of these Hebrew words are like. So all of this kind of fun stuff that that's that scholars have to work with there's a copy of the of a septuagint page right there written in an ancient greek script <laughs>